Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 89, Georgie Gardner, Rape Accusations and the Preponderance of Evidence. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Georgie Gardner. Georgie is assistant professor in the philosophy department at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Georgie's research and teaching are in the areas of epistemology and social epistemology. Our podcast today features Georgie's new article, She Said, He Said, Rape Accusations and the Preponderance of Evidence. In it, Georgie tackles a pressing question facing courts, employers, and university officials today, the burden of proof required in sexual assault cases. Georgie notes that despite the linguistic balance in the term he said, she said, the available social science data may suggest something quite different. That in fact, if one were to use the available base rate, one should conclude that a given rape accusation is likely to be true. Yet, Georgie recognizes society's unease with allowing a finding of culpability when the only evidence is an accusation and a denial. Georgie explores that social science data why we might be reluctant to find culpability based on it, and invoke some familiar evidentiary friends. Georgie, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Your paper lays out four premises for sexual assault allegations at the outset, and all of the premises are likely true, but then you show that they lead to something of a paradoxical result. What I'd like to do is proceed with your structure. So can you lay out the four premises and then we'll explore each of them in turn? Yeah, that sounds great. So there are these four claims, as you say. The first one is something like a gloss on what we mean by preponderance of evidence or a definition of what we mean by preponderance of evidence. And it says, well, the preponderance of the evidence standard is satisfied if we do an investigation, we do it well, and probably the litigated claim is true. So probably the accusation is true. That's the first claim. And then the second one is that in these she said, he said cases, which are accusations of severe sexual misconduct, so rape, sexual assault, and then a denial and no other significant evidence. So in these she said, he said cases, probably the accusation is true. The third claim is that if you find an individual culpable in a Title IX investigation, so in a university investigation for sexual misconduct, in at least some cases that warrants considerable consequences, such as being expelled, being fired, or at least being suspended. And the fourth claim is a liberal claim, which is that if the evidence is just one person's word against another, just one antagonist against another, then that's not the right kind of evidence to warrant considerable consequences, if there's no other particular evidence pertaining to the case. Okay, so for our audience, I think most of us would pretty easily agree with premise one and three, that the preponderance evidence is about things being more likely true than not, 
and that a finding of culpability in a sexual misconduct case is likely to involve significant consequences. So I'd like to focus on the second and the fourth. The second premise is that in he said, she said, or she said, he said situations, the accusation is probably true. And in making this argument, you're actually first very careful to define what constitutes a he said, she said case. Tell us how you define that situation and why that's different from other cases of sexual misconduct. Yeah, so I think that there are these two deeply intertwined questions. What is a she said, he said case? And what does the total evidence favor in those cases? And a lot of the paper, like you say, is going through like, what exactly is a she said, he said case? So the basic definition is where there's an accusation and a denial and no other significant specific evidence that bears on the case. And so there's a lot going on there with the significant and the specific. The kind of intuitive idea is that there's not something like a video recording or a third party witness or a convincing alibi. It's really kind of the main bulk of the evidence is one person's word against another. And what I argue is that in these kinds of cases, although there's this linguistic counterpoise of the common expression, a he said, she said case, just another he said, she said case, where it sort of suggests that, well, then it's equally balanced epistemically. What I argue is that although it's a linguistically balanced expression, if we actually epistemically evaluate those cases, we'll find that they're not epistemically balanced and that the evidence favors the accusation rather than the denial. And the way you do that is to offer some disturbing statistics, which I suspect will be unsurprising for some and stunning for others about base rates of sexual assault in the population. What are the base rates and how should they affect how we think about accusations of sexual assault? Yeah. So in that part of the paper, I'm cautious to not myself endorse the base rates. But what I do is I just say, look how the base rates will affect how you uptake an accusation. The content of the paper, I should say, is somewhat tender and sensitive topic. But I I take as an example an accusation of incest. So if somebody says something like, my father raped me, then people have these antecedent beliefs about how common that is. So some people will think, well, that very, very rarely happens. That's not the kind of thing that happens, or at least that's not the kind of thing that happens around here with us good country people or church-going people or us sort of sophisticated urban people. So if you have that kind of background belief, if somebody says the claim, my father raped me, then you're going to think that they're saying something really implausible. And you're going to be inclined to doubt them because it would be sort of as if they had said something like, I only eat one apple a day, I don't eat anything else. Or they've said something that you would need to assign them a lot of credibility to believe that because it's such an implausible claim. Or you could have these other beliefs according to which incest is relatively common. And then if they say something like that, it's not so implausible. It's just like they said, I had cereal for breakfast. They're saying something that's a very common thing. And so you don't really need to antecedently assign them much credibility in order to believe what they say. And so I use as an example then statistics that Naomi Wolf endorses in her book, The Beauty Myth, where she says that it's fairly well documented and fairly consistent that something like 10% of the population of women around the world are victims of incest abuse from their fathers before they're 18. So if you have the kind of Naomi Wolf 
belief that it will just be like the person has said something like I had cereal for breakfast. You know, perhaps one in 10 people have cereal for breakfast. And so when they say that, they're not saying anything that's particularly surprising. And I can bring up more of those statistics. The Naomi Wolf statistics say things like one in four women are victims of rape or attempted rape before they turn 18 and, and so on. There's a lot of really horrific statistics that I cite. And, and like I say, I don't myself endorse her statistics, but I just use that as an example of how these background beliefs, which we might not realize have this significant bearing on how we then uptake rape accusations, can actually have a very significant bearing on our beliefs when we hear an accusation. Now, there's more to the statistics as well, because it's not just the base rate of the crime itself, but also there are base rates about the likelihood that an accusation is false. And you talk a little bit about how false accusations are also incredibly rare, or at least false accusations that do not include some kind of violent narrative. Right. So that's a really important piece of the puzzle, of the kind of overall structure of the arguments. So part of it is the role of antecedent beliefs in how, in the kind of pernicious role, because we don't realize how they can have this effect. And another kind of example there is also not just base rates, beliefs about what's statistically likely, but also how implausible does a particular mode of rape occur as well. So we might think it's extremely implausible that somebody would say, have the freeze response. And if we have that background belief, then if somebody then offers that information, I had the freeze response, then it would be like they're saying something very implausible. Okay, but yeah, so you asked about the base rates of false accusations. There's a really nice article in Quartz, which I draw on, which itself draws on a massive study by the Home Office in the UK. And it's the largest study to date of accusations to the police and what their rate of being true and false is, according to our best guesses. And of course, this is the kind of data that's extremely difficult to find out because the whole problem with legal investigations is we can't always tell exactly what the truth is. All we have is what the findings were. And there could be mistakes in both directions. So police could determine an rape accusation to have been false when actually it wasn't because their reason for determining that was that the person was drunk or something like that, or that the person recanted when determined is then officially recorded as being false when it shouldn't be because it was in fact true. And then similarly, something could be officially recorded as being true when, of course, it was false. So the paper distinguishes two kinds of claims of rape victimization. Targeted accusations that actually name a person and then claims of rape that don't name a person. They don't identify an accused person. So the latter kind will be typically stranger rape. And so if somebody's walking down a street and they set upon by a stranger, somebody that they don't know who it is, and maybe there's a weapon involved, and it's forcible rape. And the other kind of accusation is one that identifies a perpetrator, so names an accused person. And they are much more likely to be acquaintance rape, because it's clear, like, they know who the person is. And one thing that I describe in my paper is that, according to this enormous Home Office study, when accusations are determined to be false, they tend to be of that former kind. They tend to be the stranger rape claims and they often sort of involve narratives of gang rape and weapons and sort of dark alleys and on a bed of glass and so on. But notice that they don't actually name anyone. So they're not strictly speaking accusations in the sense of a person who is being accused. It's a claim of rape, but it's not pointing a finger at any particular individual. So when rape claims are false, they're very often of that kind. But notice that that kind, those statistics aren't going to be contributing to the false claim base rates in she said, he said cases, because she said, he said cases are ones where there's a denial. So for there to be a denial, there has to be a person accused. 
that person has to learn about the accusation and then that person has to articulate a denial as opposed to sort of not say anything. And acquaintance rape accusations, so those kinds that can allow she said, he said cases to occur, those ones don't tend to resemble false accusations. False accusations are the stranger rape, we don't know who did it, bed of glass, dark alley. Those are the ones that, if any, are to be determined false, they tend to pattern after that. Whereas acquaintance rape accusations are not the kind of thing that look like false accusations. Okay, and so you use these statistics to defend the second claim, which is that, at least probabilistically, if these base rates are correct, then we have a situation where the preponderance standard perhaps should be satisfied. And probabilistically, I think you can make that argument, but then you raise some reservations about the legitimacy of deciding a case in this way, that you have a he said, she said situation, and then you use the base rates to conclude that most likely the accusation is true. And that's the fourth premise. Tell us about what those legitimacy concerns are. So a part of the paradox arises from this distinction between individualized evidence and this general base rate evidence. The general base rate evidence is really supportive of accusations. I mean, they're the kinds of things that tend to be true. As I lay out in the paper, denials are the kinds of things that tend to be false. So if what we're doing is judging what we should believe when we hear it, she said, he said case, if we're just looking at this kind of base rate background evidence, then probably the accusation is true. And notice that the preponderance of evidence standard is pretty low. That's all it requires to be satisfied. But there's this worry, which is that we're then judging a particular individual case based on the base rate background evidence. And so that's a kind of profiling, a kind of judging an individual by the membership of the group they're in. So in this case, it would be judging an accused person based on the membership of being in the class of accused people. And so we're judging an individual case based on this, the base rates, which for people who know about the proof paradox in epistemology, the kind of taxi cases and the prison yard cases might be a kind of familiar sounding tension between the individual person and then the base rates that we might judge them based on. Yeah. And so this is the thing that struck me when I was reading the argument. I thought immediately of the blue bus problem. And for those who may not recall the blue bus case, remember that the blue bus case is one where 80% of the buses on the road are owned by a company and there's an accident and a person claims that a bus happened to run them off the road. The 80% should be enough for the preponderance standard, but classically it is not. And scholars have debated forever the reason for why it is not. So is the he said, she said problem effectively the blue bus problem or are they different? They're different, but they are very related. And in fact, I have a second paper, which is called the she said, he said paradox and the proof paradox. What that paper does is it compares the epistemology of the two. And it sort of shows the ways in which the she said, he said paradox is kind of importantly different from the proof paradox, in particular in ways that makes it a kind of, I think, more interesting and resilient paradox, which I can also lay out. I had more to say to motivate claim four as well. So which should I say first? Do both. Go ahead and lay out the rest of claim four and then help us think about this as a blue bus type problem. Okay, great. 
So the motivations for claim four, so this is this kind of liberal commitment to the idea that if it's just one person's word against another, then a third party authority, that seems like the wrong kind of evidence for a third party authority to severely sanction one of the parties above the other party unless there's some other specific evidence that one party is lying or something. So there's two strands of motivation for claim four. So the first is the epistemic inadequacies of accusations. So a lot of the paper is kind of building up this epistemic case that accusations are on really epistemic good footing. They have all this excellent epistemic pedigree. But then part of the motivation, the first strand of motivating claim four is showing some of the epistemic weaknesses of accusations. And then the second strand is this more liberal political motivation of what kind of society do we want to live in. So the epistemic deficiencies of accusations. So one is Insofar as the evidence that was supporting this claim too, the idea that accusations are probably true, it was all these good-making epistemic features about base rates, about what tends to be the case. And that kind of evidence is insensitive to the specific case. So in a particular case where the accuser is lying, all of those good-making features nonetheless are present. So if you're judging an individual case based on the base rates, then when you have an accuser who's lying, I mean, which is a rare case, but does happen, then all of that evidence is insensitive to the lie. And so all that evidence is going to be equally as good. That's one kind of worry. So the insensitivity of base rate evidence. Another is that if all you need is just an accusation and denial, then you have low evidential weight. You don't need to be doing any testing, any kind of looking at alternative hypotheses. And so one way to sort of make this vivid is a she said, he said case could be one that's purely sort of third hand testimonial chain. So you have an accuser and a denier and they tell their friend, and then those two friends then tell the Title IX investigator at the university, if that's the evidence that the Title IX investigator has, probably the accusation is true given her evidence. She learns through a testimonial chain, through friends of the accuser and denier, that there is an accusation and denial. Well, given that evidence, probably the accusation is true. But this is very low evidential weight. She hasn't even contacted the two parties directly involved. And so there seems to be something really strange about then suspending the accused person based on that. But if all you need is that probably the accusation is true, then she's already kind of satisfied that threshold. The proponent's evidence is already satisfied, even without doing any investigation whatsoever. There's also this distinction between evidence that's compelling and evidence that's hard to fake or hard to manufacture. So if you take something like some testimony it could be very compelling, emotional, and so on. You, know, you should believe it, plausibly. But nonetheless, it's the kind of evidence that a good actor could produce relatively easily. I mean, that's the, the discipline of acting. Whereas some other evidence, like uh, some other kind of documentation, would be very hard to fake. And so that kind of distinction between evidence that's compelling, but then evidence that's hard to fake, seems like it would be important if what we're doing is sanctioning individuals with considerable consequences. So those are the kind of epistemic weaknesses of accusations and she said, he said cases. And then I look at some political motivations as well. Yeah. And it reminds me a lot of some of the classic explanations for blue bus type problems, which is that you have an instability associated with the probabilities. So you have compelling evidence, but for example, it could be faked. So therefore, even though it's compelling, it's unstable in that way. I guess I've talked about 
at various points about how the evidence of the base rate doesn't really allow you to discern between the two stories that the parties have told. This is the point that you were making about, well, you have general information, but in an individual case, it's hard for you to discern who's telling the truth based on just the base rates. Second broader question for you, what should we do about this? This, of course, doesn't just involve some nice theoretical question like the blue bus, but something that involves a, a serious problem that sadly arises often in today's society. Should we just simply get over our aversion to convicting based on base rates and create some deterrence? Or do you think we have to reframe the burden of proof? What should we do in your opinion? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm in a philosophy department, so I sort of feel like I've raised the puzzle and I'm not really sure how to go about answering it as a matter of practical applicability in society. When I sort of said about how I think my paradox is importantly different from the blue bus paradox, one of the ways I think it's different, and I think it's a relative virtue of the paradox that I lay out, is that it has this urgency, this applicability to real life. So the blue bus case, you might easily dismiss it by saying, well, it's very unrealistic. Things like that never really happen. And then also the absence of other evidence is itself a weird, abnormal aspect of the case, which is sort of suspicious and strange. Whereas in the she said, he said cases, the lack of other evidence is entirely normal and to be expected. I mean, that's part of the MO of the crime is that there's often not other evidence. And then it has this pressing applicability to society, which makes it a paradox that we can't really ignore. And I think a lot of us really feel the tension between the claims that constitute the paradox. So right at the top of the podcast, you mentioned that you thought that everybody would be on board with the claim one, the definition of preponderance of the evidence. I actually independently deny that. But I deny it in a way that I don't think will help us escape the paradox. I have a different account of what we mean by preponderance of the evidence. If it really came to it, I think it might be the liberal claim that we need to jettison. So it could just be like if we really focus, if we really look at the arguments of the paper that, that support the claim that accusations are probably true, maybe that just means that we have to really take seriously that accusations have a kind of pedigree that means that that is enough and we need to jettison the liberal claim. But I'm not sure. I really genuinely feel that the pull of the paradox. So I have to say, normally when we have philosophers on the program, I always preface it by saying that I'm asking an unfair question, that we're asking a policy question to a philosopher, uh, but that lawyers can't help themselves. So I should have framed the question that way. The other thing is that in some ways you caught me because I was trying to move through the definition of preponderance. And I myself have written about how I don't think it is simply more likely than not. And so maybe the two of us have more in common with how we think about the preponderance standard as well. Yeah, I mean, this is a very like, philosopher's response, but I was kind of thinking, well, it depends what you mean by probable. <laughs> but certainly if it means something like you know, above 50% likely, given the evidence, I certainly deny that. Final question for you. What's next for this project? So you, of course, have other papers in this line of inquiry. Any future directions that you're planning to take this work? Well, I'm definitely going to develop this particular paradox more and look at more of the different angles and different places that preponderance of the evidence might be used outside of these Title IX investigations at universities. I've also been applying this framework, this relevant alternatives framework to rape accusations. And so in particular, diagnosing the undue skepticism and doubt that rape accusations seem to attract. 
and there's this huge question that's kind of live in society and in the academic research at the moment about how should people respond to rape accusations. Maybe that just means that part of the the puzzle is that what's giving rise to the problem is that people are thinking of this, the answer to this question has to be a propositional attitude. It has to be a credence. Is it a belief or a disbelief or suspension? And I'm wondering if the tools of virtue epistemology could be really helpful. So the answer to sort of how should we respond when we're hearing rape accusations and denials, the answer lies in our dispositions and in our epistemic character and in our good epistemic judgment, rather than in a particular propositional attitude that we should have in response. So that's what I'm going to be looking at next. Well, Georgie, Thanks for taking the time to talk about this timely and important issue of how to prove sexual assault allegations and for your careful analysis of some of the issues involved. Great having you on the show. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. From time to time, one hears the tired refrain that legal scholarship isn't relevant to the practice of law. Our questions are too theoretical and our proposals too radical to be useful to judges and practitioners. But if one thinks about it, that's always the complaint about basic research. Who cares about some obscure mathematical theorem or strange experiment in physics? What does that have to do with the real world? But beside the argument that there is inherent value in the search for knowledge, time and time again, History has shown that basic research that is so-called irrelevant only is irrelevant until it isn't. And here we see another example. The blue bus problem, that plaything of evidence scholars and philosophers for the last several decades, has long seemed like a mere mental exercise, a puzzle for scholars to sharpen their ivory tower minds. But one of the exciting things that Georgie's paper does is link that previously largely theoretical problem with a pressing, practical, real-life problem today, the problem of he-said-she-said cases. This is a huge, widespread, and difficult issue facing courts, and how are we supposed to think about it? Well, guess what? Because of those decades of work, we don't necessarily have to attack the he-said-she-said problem from scratch. Instead, we already have a groundwork for addressing the problem today. It takes someone like Georgie to reveal this connection, but there it is. Exciting times indeed. And just to reiterate for the record, Georgie was right to call me on blithely saying that the preponderance standard means more likely than not. As many of you know, I'm on record arguing that it does not mean more likely than not, but the mind likes to fall into old traps sometimes. At least with Georgie's keen philosopher mind, I have been pulled out of that trap, and what was seemingly a theoretical work of mine now has a real-world problem to help illuminate. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. 
Thanks also to the Faculty of Law at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who is hosting me this semester. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.